fundamentally, we're not doing anything differently than we did in the days when all we had was a telephone and the doctor told the patient in the middle of the night to take two aspirin and I'll see you in the morning. We didn't call it telemedicine in those days, but now with the plethora of capabilities that we have, wireless technologies, the smartphone, the internet, etc., we have much broader and more comprehensive ways to interact with our patients. Telecommunications is really the umbilical cord for telemedicine, for telehealth. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Tech, a monthly podcast that explores the latest emerging technologies, the people behind them, and how these trends will affect the way we work, live, and play. I'm Stacy Kirkland of Seaspire, and in today's episode, show host Dave Miller interviews Dr. Jay Sanders, founder and past president of the American Telemedicine Association, on how telecommunications technology is revolutionizing the delivery of healthcare across the U.S. Also joining him on the program is Dr. Christy Henderson, former head of the University of Mississippi Medical Center's telehealth program, which has quickly become a national leader in the use of connected care, resulting in lower costs, better patient access, and saved lives. Welcome to CSPIRE's Let's Talk Tech podcast. I'm Dave Miller, and today we're discussing how the growing use of technology is revolutionizing the delivery of health care across the U.S. Joining us via phone to explore this subject is Dr. Jay Sanders, president and CEO of the Global Telemedicine Group. Dr. Sanders, generally known as the father of telemedicine, is founder and past president of the American Telemedicine Association and one of the nation's leading experts on connected care. Also on the program today is Dr. Christy Henderson, Vice President of Telehealth and Innovation at Austin, Texas-based Seton Healthcare Family, a division of Ascension, the largest nonprofit health system in the United States. She was formerly head of the Center for Telehealth at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and has been one of the recent champions in the U.S. telehealth movement. Dr. Sanders, Dr. Henderson, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me. Well, we're really excited to have both of you on today's program as we learn more about connected care and how it's resulted in lower costs, better patient access, and saved lives. We'll start with Dr. Sanders. As I mentioned earlier, many experts in healthcare consider you the father of telemedicine for your many accomplishments in the field. You developed the first statewide telemedicine system, the first correctional telemedicine program, the first telehome care technology called the electronic house call, and the first telemedicine kiosk. You've been a telehealth consultant for a veritable who's who of Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, and academic institutions. Thanks in large part to your efforts and those of recent telemedicine champions like Dr. Henderson, Telehealth today includes everything from telephone consultations and live video feeds via Skype to digital CT scans and remote monitoring of intensive care units. Behavioral health, dermatology, radiology, infectious disease, and stroke are commonly covered service lines, and primary care services are becoming a major focus since they usually involve quicker diagnoses. Can you share some insights with our audience on where you think telehealth is headed and when it will reach critical mass for consumers with healthcare needs, no matter where they live, how old they are, or who their insurance provider is? Where I think telehealth is headed, uh, you may think uh, is counterintuitive, 
but I actually think that very soon we'll stop calling it telehealth and we'll just call it medicine. Fundamentally, we're not doing anything differently than we did in the days when all we had was a telephone and the doctor told the patient in the middle of the night to take two aspirin and I'll see you in the morning. We didn't call it telemedicine in those days, but now with the plethora of telecommunications capabilities that we have, wireless technologies, the smartphone, the internet, etc., we have much broader and more comprehensive ways to interact with our patients. Telecommunications is really the umbilical cord for telemedicine, for telehealth. I don't need to point out that the message that the physician provides is no better or no worse whether it's done in person or whether it's done over a telecommunications line. But utilizing telecommunications, we can access our patients at more distant sites who are fundamentally geographically isolated in rural communities or socioeconomically isolated in the inner city. So this is not a substitute in terms of the healthcare delivery system. It's an addition to the capabilities that we have to deliver healthcare. I appreciate that. That really leads me to my next question. And I'd like to switch gears for a minute and talk to Dr. Henderson, who until late last year was leading efforts in Mississippi to develop and implement progressive telehealth policies and programs through the Center for Telehealth at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Through her efforts, the state was one of only seven nationwide to receive an A rating from the American Telemedicine Association in 2014. Mississippi is still largely a rural state with a shortage of doctors and long distances between patients with serious health care needs and medical facilities and expertise. But there are other states in the country with similar attributes. Are those qualities that I outlined part of the secret elixir to designing and implementing a successful telehealth program? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that as we started through that journey there in Mississippi at the Center for Telehealth at University of Mississippi Medical Center, we quickly realized that we weren't going to be able to address the healthcare workforce shortage, um, the geographic disparity in the state, and some of the other social determinants of health that are really necessary to be brought to the forefront of the policy as well as the models of care if we're going to really make any difference. And so we really went on a whole journey of building a program with the whole intent of advocating and working for policy change that was going to sustain this model. The last thing we wanted to do was to provide a new service to an underserved community in the state, start improving health, and then when funding stopped from a grant or something like that, to not have a way to continue this. That would break the trust with these communities, and frankly, we just couldn't afford to do that. The health of our state depended on us building sustainable models that require policy change and regulatory change if you're going to sustain them. So that was absolutely a part of our vision and um, our success of why it was adopted and able to grow. Well, that leads me to my next question. Many proponents say that one of the major advantages of telehealth is that it helps reduce the cost of health care by using technology to help monitor and manage consumer health issues and reduce patient visits to doctor offices and hospital emergency rooms. However, many insurance carriers, including the federal government's Medicare program, fear that telehealth will merely become an add-on to existing services. Technology advances and higher quality video equipment, smartphones, and faster internet connections 
seem to suggest that telehealth's time has come. However, the national narrative says that consumer demand for telehealth services appears to be low based on figures reported by insurance companies and individuals covered under the Affordable Care Act's exchange plans. From your perspective, and this question is for both of you, and I'll start with Dr. Sanders first. From your perspective, is it just a matter of time before consumers learn more about the value and benefits of telehealth? And how long will it take for telehealth services to become part of the mainstream healthcare delivery system in the U.S.? Well, complex question, and I'll try and make it a simple response. If you actually look at the younger consumer, who is very facile uh, with the use of the modern telecommunication technology, you see a greater percentage of the younger consumer looking at and using uh, this type of technology. Change is always difficult, especially for older individuals, and I'll include myself in that group. And so you will not see the same kind of uptake uh, with respect to that. But really what is happening with telemedicine is what has happened with respect to every one of our other service industries. I mean, think about the entertainment industry. Think about blockbusters versus Netflix. You used to go to blockbusters to get your movie. Now the movie comes to you. Banking is online. Commerce is online. Healthcare has just fallen behind and is now trying to catch up with the capabilities of telecommunications to bring the service to the patient. And I want to underline one very critical thing, perhaps actually two. We often talk about the economic benefits and the health benefits of telemedicine. We forget that from a health standpoint, telemedicine actually saves lives. And the reason I can say that is there are certain medical conditions that require a specific time element for treatment. And the classic one, obviously, is a patient with a cerebrovascular accident, a stroke. Unless you get to them within a four and a half hour period of time and provide a particular type of therapy called thrombolytic therapy, that patient may end up with a permanent paralysis or die. And yet, with appropriate therapy, these patients can literally walk out of the hospital. What telemedicine does is to bring the neurologist right to the bedside of that patient in a rural community to help the ER physician administer that life-saving medication. So this is something that is life-saving. It's not simply a convenience. It's not simply something that improves access to care. It saves lives. And that's what a lot of people forget about the advantages of this type of technology. Well, I really appreciate that observation. And that is a great segue to the response from Dr. Henderson, because I know she has some experience in the Magnolia State in Mississippi. And can you share kind of some lessons from telehealth success in Mississippi that you feel may be able to help accelerate the adoption of progressive telehealth policies and programs in other parts of the country? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'll echo what Dr. Sander was was expressing around the access to emergent care and saving lives. I'll even carry it to another step as well in that there is not any aspect of the healthcare environment that telehealth cannot make more efficient and accessible, therefore improving health. 
let me just give you a couple of examples, but one in particular is around our remote patient monitoring solution. And so what we did was we went into it knowing that there was not reimbursement for that type of service, but we knew that we had to redesign the model of care. So we worked with a rural community in the state and brought technology to a population of uncontrolled diabetics, meaning that they were in and out of the hospital in the emergency department for healthcare because their disease was not controlled and with time would continue to progress and in some cases result in dialysis, amputations, blindness, all kinds of things around the complications of diabetes. And so we deployed technology in a population that was not only underserved, um, but had a lot of challenges from health literacy and poverty and all the social determinants of health that really make behavior change and chronic disease management so difficult. And so we put this technology into the homes, not knowing what to expect. And we monitored their health and we were there with them on a day-to-day basis. And that included providing education, monitoring their vital signs and their glucose, and providing video chats as well to hold their hand and live life with them and, and understand the unique circumstances that each person has with their disease and where they are in that continuum of care. And what we found was not only did we improve health, and about 14 months into this, um, we still were doing a look back, and the final results of that are still forthcoming. But what we found was none of those patients went back into the ER or the hospital during that entire period of time for a complication of diabetes. And we had success after success to the point where we did a, a projection. If we had that kind of success with just the Mississippi Medicaid population, there was a projected $189 million per year in savings alone just if 20% of the uncontrolled diabetics that are on Mississippi Medicaid participated in the program. So this was not a small change. This is huge financial savings, but if you heard the testimonies of the people and the lives that we touched, you would hear one of hope, one of I never knew why I couldn't control my disease. I didn't know what to do. I had given up, and now they are recording their own testimonies and sharing them with us to tell how it's really changed their life in a population that you would never think would adopt this or even utilize it. We had incredible adherence rates and champions that were trying to provide it to their neighbor and friend and family members that they knew were challenged with the same condition. So that's one example, but I can name from telehealth provided in the workplace, to in schools and colleges, not to mention the example like Dr. Sanders shared around access to acute specialty services that can truly be life-saving at that moment during that golden hour. Um, huge impact. But let me just tell you that not only will those kind of stories result in better adoption, we're in this interesting position between the traditional fee-for-service model where we're paid for providing healthcare services to this transition to a value-based model. And so it's interesting, without payment reform, people are less likely to use this technology if they're not gonna get paid for it. So they're gonna revert back to the traditional model. So then therefore we wouldn't have outcomes to be able to advocate for policy change. It's this interesting position where people are gonna have to go forward, take risk, be able to prove the outcomes so that they can have the stories and evidence to be able to advocate for reimbursement change, for example, with CMS. And I might say that some of the results that Dr. Henderson and others have gotten with these studies 
uh, have certainly not gone unnoticed by CMS. And I suspect that one of the reasons that CMS has stated that chronic disease management in the newer accountable care organizations will be covered by them is because of the kind of results that Dr. Henderson and our colleagues have gotten. It really sounds like, especially from the examples that Dr. Henderson provided and and that you talked about earlier, states really are taking the lead as it relates to telehealth. They're really moving quickly to establish standards for both telehealth service and coverage. 29 states in the District of Columbia have private telehealth coverage laws, with eight states enacting new laws last year alone. National Conference of State Legislatures estimates that 32 states will have laws in effect by 2017. While they broadly mandate commercial insurers to pay for telehealth services, the statutes do vary. Some cover only real-time video, while others require specific criteria only if insurance companies choose to offer telehealth. Insurers in 23 states with stricter telehealth parity laws have to cover telehealth services at rates equivalent to in-person visits. Do you think all of this will get sorted out soon so that more consumers will be able to take advantage of telehealth services? And will that leadership be uh, continued to be brought at the state level? Absolutely. I do think that there is a, we're at a tipping point. I can feel it from when I started um, advocating for policy change back in 99, before we even started our first program. It's a much different response now than then. You know, we're invited to the table. States are being brought forward to share their success stories and to help redesign policy so that it matches this new modality of healthcare. So, I mean, I think that we are at a, um, a point where we now have started to build quite a repository of evidence that shows the success of this and um, the lower cost of healthcare by implementing it. So, I think that we'll continue to have that momentum. Um, we've done the awareness campaigns. There are people from every state advocating for this, as well as the American Telemedicine Association. So, I think we're just at a critical point where we're going to see continued adoption and expansion of policy. Yeah, and I think that, and I'm going to say something very, very candidly, and that is I think we're going to see more advocacy from the consumer and from the patient for the introduction of this technology than we may initially see from our own colleagues. Our own colleagues are still uh, sort of quizzical about the introduction of telemedicine. As a matter of fact, many physicians are concerned about the introduction of telemedicine, and here is the candid part. I think they're very concerned that it uh, represents competition for them in their own practices. And until we get that distorted mindset taken care of, we're not going to see the broad-based adoption of this type of technology by my colleagues. And certainly one of the barriers is uh, reimbursement. They don't want to be asked to do something that adds more hours to their day and in which they're not getting reimbursed. But some physicians candidly feel that telemedicine allows a physician from another location, another state, to usurp their patient population. So I want to be very candid about this. This is not simply pointing a finger at the regulatory agencies, the insurance companies. I think if we are to be 
frank with ourselves, we need to look in the mirror as well. Well, and let me jump in on that and add one other note, because that's spot on. And I think that that really is not just pressure on the regulatory boards for advocacy and change there, but also to employers and health systems of healthcare providers and physicians to give the tools to make integrated into workflows so that it can be accepted and utilized and integrated into their practice. Otherwise, it is these other groups that these physicians feel like are eroding their practices. And so um, I think it'll be interesting to watch this movement over the next year or so. I appreciate the candid responses from both of you on that question, and I absolutely agree. I think I referred to it as a three-legged stool, but the doctors definitely play a critical role in the success and the availability of telehealth services on a widespread basis in the country. Thanks for those insights. I'd like both of you to respond to my final question, which deals with the federal Medicare program. And I mentioned the Medicare program not because I want to pick on the federal government, but it's such a huge program, and it's so critical to the healthcare delivery system in the United States, particularly for consumers. As they get older, they tend to have more healthcare-related problems and issues, and therefore a need to use the system more. But The Medicare program seems to be dragging its feet and embracing telehealth as a viable option. While it's approved some telehealth coverage, it's still very spotty for the roughly one in five people older than 65 who live outside of metropolitan areas. I couldn't believe this statistic when I found it, but Medicare paid only $17.6 million for telemedicine services in 2015. And remember, that's on a $634 billion annual program. Part of the skepticism, at least critics say part of that, is is coming from the Congressional Budget Office, who's concerned that telehealth coverage may actually increase spending. But there are some glimmers of hope. A bipartisan group of legislators has introduced a bill that would loosen some of Medicare's restrictions. Under the bill, telehealth and remote patient monitoring would become standard for Medicare's alternate payment models and for Medicare Advantage. How optimistic are both of you that Congress will take tangible action to mandate full Medicare coverage for telemedicine anytime soon? And finally, can telehealth prosper and grow in the U.S. without active participation by the Medicare program? I'll jump in on that one, and then we'll let Dr. Sanders close out on that. You know, so the Connect for Health Act is um, the bill that you're referring to, and there's several others that have bipartisan support. You know, I would say that every year we're more optimistic that these will progress further. There's been a tremendous amount of work by multiple groups to generate this bill that would potentially not get scored by CBO. And the bill um, has the really specifically goes in there and talks about the potential for cost savings and, and projects a $1.8 billion in savings for 10 years, all around the changes that are in there around changing the originating site restrictions and some of the geographic limitations and other uh, limiting factors that are prohibiting full use of telehealth and remote patient monitoring. And so, It was really um, a very calculated bill to be conservative, to hopefully be able to move forward, yet impactful enough to start seeing a real difference. So I think that we're in an interesting position, and I'm very optimistic that this will move forward. 
And I totally agree with Christy on that. I ought to say, and this is something that not a lot of people say about Congress these days, I really have to applaud Congress for the fact that for many years it has been pushing telemedicine and to get legislation passed, but uh, it always comes up against the CBO analysis in this. With regard to CMS, CMS has been both hypocritical and schizophrenic about its response to telemedicine. What a lot of people don't know is that by way of activity, 70% of telemedicine activity is teleradiology. A lot of people don't know that. We often talk about telemedicine. We never mention radiology, but teleradiology is 70% of the volume of telemedicine, and CMS does reimburse for teleradiology, and it is not geographically determined. If it's teleradiology, it's teleradiology, and it is reimbursed. Where they have been schizophrenic, if not hypocritical, is in all the other subspecialty areas. And when asked why, they really have no good answer. A lot of people don't realize that the people making decisions within CMS have had no experience with telemedicine. As a matter of fact, many of them have had no experience in the healthcare delivery system, yet they're making decisions with respect to whether or not uh, these things are valuable or not with respect to the patient. The newer accountable care organizations, they are increasing the amount of reimbursement for these organizations with respect to telemedicine. And I really do think that within the next three to five years, this won't even be a question. Well, thank you again for that response. As we've learned today, the growing use of technology and connected care is revolutionizing the delivery of healthcare across the U.S. And there is strong evidence that connected care can lower costs, improve patient access and treatment, and, as both of you have so eloquently pointed out, save lives. If you'd like to learn more about telemedicine, go to www.americantelemed.org. And you can follow Dr. Henderson's efforts with Seton Healthcare Family at www.seton.net. Thanks again to both of you for coming on today's program, and we'll look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can follow major developments in telemedicine on Twitter at American Telemed. To learn more about telemedicine, go to www.americantelemed.org. You can follow UMMC's progress in implementing its telehealth initiatives at www.umc.edu forward slash telehealth. If you like the show, subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Join us next time as we talk with professional golfer Olin Brown about how technology is radically changing competition, player fitness, and recovery. Brown, a 33-year veteran of the PGA and Senior Tours, with five titles and over $14 million in winnings, will talk about the impact of technology on golf and how players, no matter what their age and skill level, can use it to their advantage. We'll be right back.